Let's take our Bibles together. We're in Revelation. We began this series last week. We'll be in here a while. Um, It probably says in the bulletin, we're going to go to verse uh, 20. We're not. Um, After studying it, it just seemed like I had plenty to do with eight verses. So we'll end it at verse 8 this morning. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Let's give our attention to God's word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Please join me as we pray in preparation. Father, as we sang a few moments ago, these words are ancient to us. But just because they're ancient, it doesn't mean that they're any less powerful. And because you have breathed them out by your Spirit, They are to us, and they are in actuality living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. They are to us the food that is our daily bread. They are for us, for our salvation, to make us wise to salvation, to sanctify us in the very truth of what these words are. And Father, you have called men to preach and all men who would preach are ultimately weak. We cannot accomplish anything of eternal or lasting value. So we're asking, Father, by your spirit that you would cause us to hear from you more than the words of a mere man above and beyond. God, be free in this room and give us that each of us, Father, that sense of expectancy that we're going to hear from you. And as a result of hearing, Father, may we in our minds, in our desires, in our actions, in our character, may we be made more like Jesus. We want that to happen. We pray that it would. For the glory of Christ. Amen. This last week, I, uh, I found a fraudulent charge on my credit card. This has probably happened to you, too, at times. Anyway, I called the company uh, that was responsible for that charge to clear up the problem, and it seems that somebody used my, my credit card to purchase every possible option from this company that supplies shaving and other such stuff. Everything on the list was purchased and sent to some home in California. Um, anyway, so I thought, well, I better call. As I made that phone call, I, I declared who I was, I declared what I expected them to do. It was just simply a basic greeting on my part, but it was necessary for the matter to be resolved. And I think we get that. Greetings are, of course, important, and they're really an essential part of communication. We use them all the time. We don't just launch into something if we're going to address someone, right? They provide, the greeting provides some context for who it is speaking or what we're doing here or what's going to be happening, the purpose of the communication. And we get this in, in polite society. We should always do this, right? Greetings, even with people we know well. I call my wife on the phone. I just don't launch into what I want. Hi, how's it going? She knows who it is, but we get it, the importance of greetings. And they're especially important when the matter is weighty, isn't it? This last well, couple of weeks ago, I guess I got a call from my cardiologist. Hello? Jonathan, this is Dr. Khan's office. Wanted to let you know that the results of your stress test are normal. Whew, thank you. 
That was good, but I needed to know who it was, right? The greeting is important. Well, what we read together in this section from Revelation, it's a greeting. That's what it is. But it is the word of God. There aren't any throwaway words in Scripture. Every word, every sentence, every paragraph is important. But what is happening here is what is being laid out for us is a, a brief foundation for what is going to be said through the entirety of the book of Revelation. And so I want to give you a, a kind of a framework as, as how I see this greeting sitting in the context of the book of Revelation. This greeting gives us both the source of the message and the intended audience. It gives us the nature of that message and then ultimately the purpose of it. So the source and, and intended audience, the nature of the message, and then the purpose of the message. And that sets us up to hear what follows. Now, we're just going to camp on the greeting this morning. And first, uh, as, we, as we observe our way through this, first we discover this is a message to the church from God. It's a message to the church from God. I was thinking of how to illustrate this and the importance of it. I was, I was just imagine with me, if you will, and sometimes this happens in your neighborhood, but maybe somebody in your neighborhood decided that they want to do some kind of block party and it would last a few hours and that plan involved having no cars coming or going during that time. And to implement the plan, of course, they'd probably send some flyers around the neighborhood. Hopefully they planned ahead, but imagine if it was just like, oh, in a week I want to do this. They'd send flyers. Maybe they'd go house to house explaining what they want. Now, invariably, somebody would go, well, well wait a minute, I, I've, got, I've got guests from out of town. That, that's not going to work for me. I, I don't think I'm playing along. In fact, I, whatever you want, that's not working for me. We already had our guests coming, and we need the driveway, and we need to come in on the street. Well, likely that would happen with some people, right? But imagine, though, it's a different source. Someone calls, someone canvasses the neighborhood and says, the presidential motorcade is coming through. You will not be able to come or go. And I think you'd, you'd take that message a little bit differently. You'd say, yeah, I guess we're good. You might grumble, <laughs> but you're going to be inconvenienced. And that's just what's going to happen, right? It matters where the message comes from. It matters. In, in Revelation, we're, we're simply, if, if Revelation, if this whole book were simply the imaginations of a random prisoner on an island set apart as a penal colony, then we certainly would not be reading this. It would not be in the Bible. But as it is, we cannot, we must not dismiss this as we consider the providence, the source of this, this letter. Verse 4, we're told this is from John. John 2. It's John, but who's John? John is the apostle, the same author as the gospel and three epistles. So this has apostolic authority. And because it has apostolic authority, it is also inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God breathed into him, ultimately breathed out this word through this vessel, John. And in fact, he testifies to this fact, and we can look beyond where we're reading today, testifies this to, uh, to this in verse 10, where he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the, the Holy Spirit. So it is part of the New Testament canon because it, it has apostolic authority. And like I said, like the rest of Scripture, it has been breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training us in righteousness. So what John has to say here is from God. It's not just some sort of fantastic writings. It is from God, and it has all of the authority of having come from God. And we're told then who it's to. It is to seven churches that are in Asia, Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor, this is the area that is east of the Aegean Sea. So if you imagine in your mind, you've got the Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea kind of comes out to the north of that. This area, these seven churches... Uh, he ultimately identifies them again beyond where we've read today, verse 11. You can see them uh, in your Bible there. Uh, they're listed. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They're all sitting there. And in fact, and we'll get to this next week, where John is on an island, Patmos is just off in, to the west of where these cities are in the Aegean Sea. 
So seven churches, that's who they are. Now we might ask, well, why seven? There were likely more than seven churches in that area. So I, I take it that this is somehow symbolic. I think we're to understand that. Well, why seven as a symbolic number? Well, if we read through the scripture, we, we come to find that seven is, is, is a symbolic number, a uh, divine symbolic, divinely symbolic. So uh, a divine pronouncement of completion, if you will. It's a kind of a perfect number, the, the, the perfect number where God brought creation into existence. Six days he created everything, and on the seventh day he rested, in a sense, declaring the completion of everything. And we see this as we move through the Old Testament. We see in the law, blood was sprinkled on the altar seven times, Leviticus 4, 6. Uh, Purification and consecration rites were seven days. And so even as we move through Revelation, we'll see this symbolic number being used, seven churches, seven lampstands, seven stars, all in sevens, torches of fire, spirits of God, seals, also sevens. The lamb standing as though slain with seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits, seven trumpets and angels to blow them, seven thunders, dragon with seven heads, seven Angels with plagues, seven bulls of God's wrath, seven mountains, seven kings. It is symbolic. So here, to the seven churches in Asia means, really, the completion of the message is going to all the churches, effectively, that are. All the churches everywhere and in every time and in every place. Now, if we read this literalistically, and I just want to say something as we move through Revelation, we'll see lots of numbers. There's lots of occasions where numbers are. And I'm not settling here, but we're going to see 1,000. We're going to see 144,000. And if seven is just seven, then maybe 144,000 is just 144,000, and maybe 1,000 is 1,000. But if seven would be symbolic and not meant to be taken literalistically, but understood as a symbol of something, then perhaps, and I'm, and I'm not saying what, what we should think about these things, as we encounter numbers, we have to have some grace and, and some understanding to say, is something more than the specific number being communicated? But here, it's clear, and it's clear to at least all of the commentarians I could see, the people smarter than me, that, that this is in, intended not just to be the seven churches alone, but the message as it is in the Bible. The message is to go to the entirety of the universal church to all the churches. And as we think about the exhortations in Revelation, the things that we're told, we're to understand them in the sense of hearing them in the collective, in the assembly, in the gathered. I mean, we can sit through any book of the Bible and and, uh, say the letters, particularly the New Testament letters, and think, yes, these exhortations are for me, and they are. But brothers and sisters in Christ, when we read our Bibles, especially the New Testament letters, we're we're to think about ourselves in the context of the church where our neighbor hears it and the other one across the way hears it and we all hear it together and we, we obey it together and we exhort each other to listen and pay attention. And we're to understand this letter in the same way, not to be read in isolation of the, the people of God. But as John said earlier in this, We're blessed. If you read it out loud, don't hide it away. Don't just deal with it on your own, but we're blessed if we consider it together. So again, this message of revelation, not just for seven churches in Asia some 1900 years ago, but really for us. And so as a subset, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, Overland Hills Church family, we being a subset of the universal church We are gathered in this place today, just as there are other faithful churches in this nation. And this message in this book meets us where we are. It meets the church in Ukraine that Jim prayed about. It meets the assemblies in China and Pakistan and Iran and Germany and and Russia. It meets them where they are. It meets them as believers who are wondering, how can I be hopeful when Things around me seem to be falling apart. When we look and and think that situation isn't right, God, will there be justice? God, are you going to deal with this persecution over here? Are, Are you going to deal with this trouble? When things don't seem 
right. This is for us. What do they need? Those other churches, what do we need? And that's the next point. It is a message of grace. It is for the churches from God, but it is a message of grace. Now, the word grace, such a, such a beautiful word. I don't think you can consider the word grace. In, and when you receive grace from others, right? Th think of any kind of gift that you've ever received, any thoughtful or helpful or heartfelt, generous offering for your good done out of love. Does it not bring you joy? Grace is just that kind of word. Now, back in verse 3, dealt with this last week, we we're told that reading, hearing, and obeying this word would re result in, in God's blessing. Right? So here in verse 4, that blessing is a little more specific. John, following his self-identification, uh, says John to the seven churches. Right? He expresses his longing. This is also in verse 4 for grace and peace from God. Now, I want you to see that the way he expresses it is specifically that grace and peace from God is specifically from the three persons of the Godhead. This is kind of a, a Trinitarian expression of God, God's grace. This is his longing. Now, that word grace in, in the original, charis, the, uh, the kind of the, um, the root of charismatic, perhaps you heard that word. It's that which brings joy. But really specifically, when you see the word grace in the New Testament, it's, it's particularly that which God bestows on his own. And it's because of his loving kindness. So if you think of the character of God, it's, it's the outpouring of his loving kindness to his people. That's, that's grace. And grace from God ultimately, ultimately points his people to and establishes them in Christ. So God's grace points us to Christ and then ultimately establishes us in Christ. That's what God does. That's how God gives. And then peace is the effect of that grace from God. That word peace, erene in the original, and you might recognize that from, from the English word. We, if you describe somebody as irenic, that's, that's a peace-loving person. Or, or it's the, uh, the, what, what is in the root of that a female name, Irene, right? Peaceful spirit. Peace is that sense of, of inner tranquility, but also this harmony with God and with others. Now, grace, the overflow of God's goodness, the, the outpouring of his loving kindness to us own, and the result being peace. And just where you sit this morning, I think all of us are tempted the slightest thing goes wrong. And maybe that we're put off kilter a little bit. And we don't feel peaceful. We don't feel tranquil. We're often tempted, right, to feel otherwise when things don't go our way. We're told this message is one that will, is God's grace for our peace. So I want it. And I think, brothers and sisters, you want it too. Well, then John tells us who that grace and peace is from. And, and I think it's true. When we think of grace and genuine, lasting peace, the, the only possible source for that is God, God who gives. And what follows in the second part of verse 4 really helps the church to understand how God, in his three persons, ultimately plans, acts, and then applies the message of grace. Look at verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Well, you can see in that formulation, who is, that's the present. Who was, that's the past. Who is to come, that is the future. And, and I take it here that, that John is, is making reference to God the Father, or at least the Godhead in the entirety in God's eternal essence. God 
who never was not. God who never was not and who will and will forever be. Eternally existent, no beginning, no ending, always was. Well, in fact, this is how God revealed himself to Moses, if you recall. God gave him his divine name, Yahweh, or sometimes we say Jehovah, the existent one. When he said to him, I am that I am, being in essence, without the being of God, God's self-existence, there is nothing else. And before time, before creation, before anything, he determined to save and set apart people unto himself. This is the Father. As we're told in the beginning of Ephesians, I often quote this and I, I delight in this. And it says this, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Skipping on. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice those words, the outpouring, the giving of God. In his eternality, he has, he has backed up an eternally infinite dump truck of good on us. That's what he's done. All in his son. Well, then John continues here. This message of grace and peace is also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, that language is a little odd to us. Now, I want you to note, though, that this is not an additional description of the Father, but a person, and I will say that, singular person, other than the first, which we're to take, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. But here again is the seven, right? They're not seven Holy Spirits. But this is really, again, symbolic language. We know that there are not seven Holy Spirits from the rest of Scripture, so we can, we can be absolutely certain that there's something symbolic about this. And I think he uses the, term, the, the word seven to, to communicate really the completeness of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Now, this isn't unique. This isn't unique to Revelation. Isaiah 11.2, there it contains a, a sevenfold description of the completeness of of the Spirit's power. And I want you to listen to this from Isaiah 11:2. You can count with me, right? And the Spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold description of the completeness of the work of the Spirit. Now, it is because of the Holy Spirit that grace and peace are not just academic ideas to us. It is because of the Holy Spirit. It is more than just head knowledge. We who are God's people, yes, through faith in the Son of God, we who are God's people, we experience this grace and peace ultimately because it is the Spirit who applies it to our lives. The wisdom, the understanding, the knowledge, the counsel of the Spirit of God actualizes God's grace and peace to us. He applies to us the truth about Jesus. He reveals to us and makes us aware and causes us to actually embrace the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who was crucified in our place. It is the Holy Spirit that transforms us as a result of that. He awakens us from our spiritual deadness, brings us to life, and he continues his work in our lives through this message of grace. He never leaves us alone. Praise God that he doesn't. He is forever with us. So the effect of this, again, as we move through Revelation, the effect of this is no matter what, no matter what we face in this world, it doesn't matter what it is, the worst of circumstances, we can have, we have the grace of God, 
which results in the peace of God. This is what the Apostle Paul affirmed in, in Romans chapter 8. Again, I, I love this. And if you're ever at a place where you're like, am, am I a child of God? Hear this word. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's a fact. The Spirit himself bears witness. There's this communicating that goes on. The indwelling work of the Spirit says, you're a child of God. That's, that can't be taken away. And maybe you might say, well, I don't know if I feel it right now. Ask yourself the question. When you look to the cross, when you see in the pages of Scripture and you're reminded that Jesus is the Son of God, that he suffered and died in your place. And your heart says, yeah, he did that for me. That forgives my sin. That makes me acceptable to God. You wouldn't know that. You wouldn't have that awareness apart from the Holy Spirit. That is God ministering his grace to you through the Spirit and as a result, giving peace. Well, there's grace and peace from the Father, his electing grace from before creation. The Spirit of God applying this grace. And at the same time, it is from the Son of God. Look at verse 5. This is and, we continue the sentence, and from Jesus Christ. This is from the Father, it's from the seven spirits surrounding the throne, which is the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Well, notice first in this description, the title of the Son of God. He is the Christ. And to say he's the Christ just envelops centuries of, of scripture and expectation that God would ultimately reveal this one, this anointed, which is what it means, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 the offspring of Abraham, the, the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the, the prophet like Moses, but better. David's greater son, the suffering servant, the one by whose stripes we are healed. That's the Christ. And notice, notice that John describes him in three ways. And this is, this is for us how, how we how this grace and peace is ultimately revealed to us and it makes sense to us. The Holy Spirit applies something. What is he applying to us? Jesus is faithful witness. So from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that's the first descriptor. And that's a reference to his word, Jesus' teaching. He faithfully testified to the truth about God. Jesus said, John 12, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So there's no conflict between the word from the Father and what the Son has spoken and continues to speak. And specifically, what is revealed through this book in Revelation. There is a perfect unity of the message between God the Father and God the Son. And there are some today, perhaps, who, who like to study and they're on the fringes of religion and they, they, they're impressed by the academics of it all and maybe the, the comparative religion departments at universities. And they talk about Jesus like he's something other than God and, well, you know, God is the wrathful one and Jesus comes in and is all takes the edges off. God the Father, it's like silly descriptions like that. No, there is no, there's no, there's no difference. There's no confusion between what the Father says and what the Son says. Perfect unity in the message. Because Jesus is the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus embodies the very revelation of God. Jesus speaks for God and has all the authority from the Father to do so. He is a faithful witness. But he also describes, and John also describes him as firstborn of the dead. Now, you know the story. Christians, we, we're here because Jesus was crucified and raised. We sang. He's alive, right? That's, that's the story, right? 
that Jesus died vicariously, that is to say, in our place for all who trust in him. His death, it just wiped away that, that record of our sin, made it non-existent to the face of God, cast that as far as the east is from the west, right? Jesus bore in his own body the full measure of the wrath of God for our sin. Glorious truth. But Jesus himself did not remain in that tomb. You know that. And that's what we celebrate. Like I said, every time we are here, Jesus is alive. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection, in particular his resurrection, is both the example, but also the guarantee of our own bodily existence in the presence of God after we had died. That's what he is. That's what he does for us. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, as Adam's sin that brought condemnation, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. And this is important. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He was the first to be raised bodily. And if you've trusted in Christ, if you've truly trusted in Christ, you may feel your body wasting and withering away. If you're young, uh, let me assure you, it'll start to feel like it's breaking down. <laughs> That's the human experience, right? And unless Christ returns in the meantime, we're all going to be put in a tomb and turned to dust. But we get a new body when Jesus returns. That's our hope. Because Christ is alive, we who are in him will also be made bodily alive and forever. And then in this description, John then describes Jesus as ruler of kings on earth. Ruler of kings on earth. Well, you know the story. Uh, after Jesus was raised from the grave, he ascended. He ascended to heaven. Acts 1.9. Now, Jesus' ascension wasn't merely a physical lifting up from the earth, okay? It's not just like he ascended, that is to say he physically was lifted from the earth. That's true, he was, but it's not merely that. It was a, an enthronement. He ascended to a throne. Colossians 3.1 says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is enthroned there. And what that means, that Christ has authority over all things, authority over all people, all kingdoms, and there is nothing, nothing at all outside of Christ's domain to rule. Nothing. As it says in 1 Peter, Jesus is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All things have been subjected to Jesus. Now, we might push back hearing this and say, well, does our president acknowledge that? I don't know. But does Vladimir Putin acknowledge that? Does Xi Jinping acknowledge that? Does Bolsonaro or Olaf Scholz? Look up at the news who these people are. I've just picked a few countries, okay? Do they get that Jesus is king? Do they know him and submit? Well, that remains an open question. The fact that Jesus is ruler of all the kings, they may not be aware of it, but part of the message of Revelation is that Jesus is this ruler over kings of the earth. And we will see later from John's vision He'll pull back this, this curtain so that we can see Jesus from heaven's perspective. And what we'll see is that Jesus is unfolding this plan so that what is true in actuality, Jesus has authority, will be fully acknowledged by the kings of the earth and they will one day submit. I love Philippians 2 at the end of that section talking about the humility of Jesus so that he is ultimately exalted. There is a coming a day when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. The day's coming. Now, as we read through the Revelation, we're going to find descriptions of, and predictions of demonically influenced world powers using and abusing authority, acting unjustly, persecuting God's people, even to the point of death. But the message we're being told in this greeting, the message of revelation from God to the church is one of grace and peace, even in the face of that. That's supernatural. Well, finally, the purpose of this, purpose of revelation. That's my third heading here, to glorify Jesus in his return. To bring him glory. That's the purpose. Now, we get glorifying. We know how that works. Um, it's an illustration here. 1967. That's an important number. It is, in fact, the price in Canadian dollars of a coffee table book published some years ago um, showing the storied history of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's priced at $19.67. Now, that price point was a little bit of an insult because 1967 is, in fact, the last time the Leafs won the Stanley Cup. I'm sure it was purposeful. Now, 1967, I was three years old. Too young to remember it. But like every other long-suffering Leafs fan, we hope, upon hope, that this will be the year. And I can imagine, I can imagine, I allow myself to think this at the beginning of the season. If they start to do badly, then they let go of it. But uh, I can imagine that if this were to happen, that they would win a Stanley Cup, that there will be a parade through the streets of Toronto. Team superstar, Austin Matthews. He's an American, but that's okay. I'm guessing that they will mint a new loony, that's the $1 coin. They will remove Queen Elizabeth, and they will put Austin Matthews on there. I'm pretty sure of it. But you know what this feels like, right? When your favorite team wins, especially if you've been waiting a long time. Cubs fans? You know, Husker fans? <laughs> the glory days? <laughs> right? You've been waiting a long time, right? And it happens? Well. Streets erupt, right? You cheer, you celebrate, you bring attention to their skill. And what happens in some sense, you're bringing glory to them, aren't you? That's, that's what that is. It's great to be rooting for the winning team. Now, okay, it's just sports. It's just sports. Rather unimportant, unimportant in the cosmic scheme of things. But what is cosmically and eternally important. What we, God's people, have been waiting for for a long time is for Jesus to return. That will be infinitely more glorious than the Leafs winning. In fact, we won't even care about the Leafs or the Huskers or the Iowa, whatever they're called. <laughs> Sorry. Hawkeyes. Buckeyes fans, you always get to win, whatever. I digress. Those things will seem paltry and nothing when Jesus returns. They'll seem like absolutely, absolute silliness, as, as important as they might feel now. And at Jesus' return, his victory, that will be obvious to all of creation. It'll be obvious to all of creation. It will not be hidden from anyone. Now, having been told that Revelation is a message to the church from God and that it's a message of grace and peace for God's people, John then launches into this doxology. And I take it, what it is, is a reminder of all that God has done, all that God will do, and that this is ultimately to our benefit, our eternal benefit. And that ultimately, it, it always has been first, okay? The return of Jesus, everything in Revelation, everything has always first been for the glory of the Son of God. That's what this doxology is telling us. Now describe it as a doxology. Doxa, it's, doxa means glory and logia, words. It's glorious words. That's what a doxology is. 
And that, that great and glorious event, bringing an end to sin and rebellion and the, the, the corruption on creation that has caused untold human misery and death and condemnation ever since man disobeyed God, ever since man decided that his way was better than God's, the thing that ends that all is Jesus' glorious return. And so here in the second half of verse 5, John includes this doxology. This is a, a declaration of praise to Jesus. And we're told here that Jesus is glorified in the saving and setting apart of a people. That's the first point of glory. He tells us, to him, begins, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is the motivation for it, right? Motivated by love, John recounts the very thing that saved us. Sinners who had been condemned ultimately find freedom and eternal life through Jesus' victorious, victorious and vicarious death. It was victorious because he conquered sin there. He conquered its power. He conquered its consequence to us. And listen, brothers and sisters, the fact, this is the gospel message, right? That Jesus died for our sins and rose again. This message should never, ever, ever get old to us. Ever. If ever you're discouraged about your life, if ever things don't seem like they're going your way, there's one eternal blessing that will never be impacted. It's the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And because of him, you're a child of God. How many of us have, have memorized John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love, Jesus' love. And, and it's not just freedom. We're not just given freedom from the eternal consequence of sin, that is to say condemnation, but we're given freedom from its power in the present. And that's, that's important. Sin no longer has to control you because you've trusted in Christ. Yeah, I know it's a battle, but it doesn't have to. Paul says this in Romans 6, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, listen to this, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, being made holy, and its end, eternal life. So it's sanctification now, being made holy, and in the end, the reward of eternal life. And get this, that, that saving has an eternal purpose. We are not saved for our own sake. We are saved, in fact, for praise. We are saved for stewardship. Look at verse 6. We're continuing through this doxology. And he made us a kingdom of priests. Sorry. And he made us a kingdom. Priests to his, that is Jesus, the, the son's God, his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He made us a kingdom. Priests. To his God. This is what Peter captures in his letter, right? He says there, drawing on language from the Old Testament, probably Deuteronomy, I think, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. To what end? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why have you been saved? Why have, has God set us apart to himself that we may proclaim his excellencies? Not to shut our mouths to these things. We exist as trophies of God's grace to show his goodness and his excellencies to all of creation. And that ought to delight us and to excite us. But here, I know, how often do we get distracted? How often do we start looking at the temporal things in our retirement accounts or, or the fact that something broke in the house and, and, and we get kind of wrapped around the axle on temporary things? So easily distracted, aren't we? Put so much effort into things that are just going to turn to dust. We've been saved and set apart to proclaim His excellencies. Finally, in this 
not sure. Yes, finally in this. No, there's a couple more. One more. Jesus is glorified returning to the earth. Okay, this is the glory of Jesus. This is doxology, these good words, right? Glorifying words. He's glorified returning to the earth. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He's coming in the clouds. The clouds could simply imply the heavens, right? He came out of the heavens, same way he went up, right? Acts 1, 11, the angel there said, he goes up into the clouds, he'll, you'll see him come back. And I think that's true. But the cloud itself, the cloud that was part of Jesus' ascension and his return could also be an indication of the glory of God. And, and I only say this because as I think through the Old Testament, how God gloriously manifested his pre presence in the pillar of cloud for the Israelites through the wilderness wanderings, right? Or when Moses uh, constructed at the Lord's command, the, the tabernacle and the dedication of that tabernacle, the, the cloud, the thick smoke that filled that place. Likewise, when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, a, a cloud, thick smoke occupied that. Glory. And this glorious appearing of Jesus will not be hidden from anyone, we're told, including those who pierced him. And when Jesus was crucified and put in a tomb to his enemies, it looked like Jesus was defeated. Those Jewish leaders who falsified those charges against him set him up to be crucified by Roman authorities. That Jewish establishment that, that wanted him silenced, they, they might have felt like, hey, we, we got it done. But then they discovered the tomb was empty and, and those religious leaders then concocted this story that his disciples stole the body away. But then he displayed, Jesus displayed his glory following his resurrection to a few. The disciples, upwards of 500, were told in 1 Corinthians 15. But Jesus' return, Jesus' return will be a glorious, cosmic, all creation visible event that no one will mistake what is happening all will see it, including those who pierced him. And in this return, Jesus is ultimately glorified in his vindication. His vindication. You know what vindication is? It's when the record has been uh, misunderstood or there's some falsehoods. Ultimately, the truth will be there. Everybody will know who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. He will be vindicated. And all of the tribes of the earth, we're told, will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Meaning, even so, this is true. So there won't be any mystery to who Jesus is. There won't be the slightest uncertainty of his divine identity as the Son of God. And generations of people who took that wide road, the path of least resistance, generations of people, people who had ignored him, who had dismissed him, who had openly dis disobeyed him and mocked him, scriptures tell us they will wail. There will be a kind of regret. And I think this is what the essence of hell is. There will be kind of, a kind of regret that will torment them for eternity. Jesus will be vindicated to his glory. And this whole doxology se section is just summarized with a quote from God. To wrap it up, his voice comes in here saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's a greeting. <laughs> We're prepared for what's coming. Why revelation? Why the letters to the churches? Why the predictions of suffering? Why the visions and imagery and symbolism? It's to remind the church that God is gracious and that 
that grace will give us a peace that will sustain us no matter what we may face. Because in the end, Jesus, our Savior, Lord, and friend, will be exalted above all. Now, there are some, we get this today, who've, who've tried to distill the Christian life into maybe some ethical teachings from Jesus. Jesus taught ethically. He taught people to do good. But the sum total of the message of the Bible isn't like, hey, Jesus did some good things, you do some good things too. As believers in Jesus, we're, we're to have this eschatological view eschaton, the end, a view of the end. We're to put our hope not in our ability to imitate Jesus in his goodness. We're to put our hope in the culmination of all things when he will be gloriously put on display. And when that day comes, brothers and sisters, and I, I, I hope that you're praying and hoping for that day. It is so easy to get distracted by temporal things. I get that. But Revelation teaches us to lift our eyes and look beyond the here and now to what is yet to come. And in that day, we, his people, who've longed for his appearing, having been brought through persecution and suffering and even death, we will bask in the sweetness and the beauty of of his glory for our eternal joy forever. Let's hold on for that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your spirit who works and moves among us to apply these truths to us. Father, keep us faithful. For whatever comes before us, help us to hold fast to this confession of hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold us to yourself, Father. We know we don't hold ourselves. We know you hold us. We pray that you would. And give us that appetite, that desire to see the consummation of all things in the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we pray this for his glory. Amen.